into an alchemy, all its own. First the kindling, it placed the dry pieces of wood at the bottom. The twigs set up like a pyramid. Then the spark. Careful, careful, blow just a little. Watch it lick the wood. Hesitant at first, then hungry, angry. Dancing between there and not there, yellow, red, orange. The oldest magic there is. Fire. And if you stare at this flame, at this dance, at dusk, from the corners of your eye, you will see the shadows bend. Don't look. Don't look now. Look at the fire. Let the faces come of their own bidding. Be still. Else they flee like cats. Look to the fire. The flame, the burn, and know this. Last year, we brought you a special podcast. We called it Spooked. Amazing stories from the inexplicable. So this year, Snap's coming at you with a second season of Spooked. 13 all-new episodes dropping later in August. Be afraid. It's a journey through the dark side like nothing you've ever experienced. But before we go there, I want you to hear a little something from Spooked Season 1. Snappers, it's time for Campfire Tales. My name is Glenn Washington. Stay close to the flame because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Imagine, it's the middle of the night. You're not even 15 years old. You're home alone with your little brother, waiting for your mom to come home. Waiting and waiting to hear her car pull into the driveway. And you're wondering, what if she doesn't make it. She had a night shift job in Salt Lake, which was about 70 miles south of where we lived, soldering um, electrical components. I, um, I think she was actually working on missiles. I think she was, uh, Sperry Rand was, uh, had a um, defense contract from the, from the federal government. So when mom went back to work, my older brother Kent had been babysitting us, but he had been drafted and was in Vietnam at the time. So uh, after he left and went into the service, it was pretty much just Rod and I and my younger brother Rod. And I was mostly in charge at that time. So um, yeah, when I got off the bus every day, there was nobody there. We're responsible for making dinner, cleaning up, taking care of ourselves, getting ourselves to bed, and um, usually up again the next morning because mother would come home and she'd be sleeping. So, um, yeah, that was that was the way it was. Remember, this is uh, the '50s and a Mormon community. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody that I knew of was was getting divorced at the time. And it did. It made me different because I was the one that was coming home uh, uh, to a house without a mother in it. So one night I'm sleeping and I'm suddenly awakened. And I sit up in my bed and I look around the room and I try and figure out what it was that woke me up. And I'm thinking it was some kind of sound. And for some reason, my attention uh, goes to my bedroom closet where I can see that my old tap shoe box 
has fallen from the shelf above uh, the hangers. And I thought that was quite strange, but nonetheless, I went over and I picked the box up and, and put the black patent leather shoes back into it, put the lid back onto it. And then, of course, I went back and got into bed. But I couldn't lay down. I just really just sat there under the covers waiting because I was feeling like I was supposed to be up for some reason. And I knew something was going to happen. I can't explain it except that I felt like I was waiting on something bad. And I would have gone and told Mom if she'd been there, but of course she was at work. And so I was in charge, and I was very well aware that whatever was going to occur was going to be in my lap. And then I heard the thud. And then I heard another thud and another thud. I knew they were coming from my left side as I was positioned in my bed looking out my window. And that would have meant that they would have had to have been coming either from our garage or the ward's place on the, uh, on the other side of it. The ward's place was right next door to us. Thud, thud, like that. I remember hearing that sound, you know, as it diffused out over our orchards to the west. Then I heard another one. And then I thought, well, I better get up and check the rest of the house out because I'm in charge now. I felt a real deep concern. So I go and I check out the locks on both the front and back doors at first. Then I go into the kitchen and I turn on the light above the sink. So I'm standing at our porcelain sink and it has uh, windows all the way around it. I just stood there for a while and just like anchored almost. Uh, as if I was supposed to just be in that spot. It did seem at that point that something bad had taken hold of the night. My first fear was for my mother. She had to drive that 70-mile drive, you know, all the way home uh, in the dark, and she was always complaining about how tired out her eyes were after staring eight hours into a magnifying glass. How, uh, you know, how tough it was uh, to keep from falling asleep on that drive home. And I told God, would he please protect her and our black Chevy? Protect me from becoming an orphan. It was more just sort of maybe a dread. My, uh, my breathing alters a little bit. I prayed off the dread of a call from the police. Right then, sirens, sirens come screaming down Highway 89 and four um, patrol cars screech to a halt in the ward's driveway next door. And well, all I can think about is Donnie, the one with the wild reputation, but I can't understand why it would take so many cops to arrest one guy. Uh, the policeman gets out, they hide behind the doors of their cars. The sheriff gets out the megaphone. Uh, it was just like in the movies. And he started, he, he, he first called for Mr. Ward to come out of the house. And then he called for Mrs. Ward. And then he called for Donnie. But nobody came out. What I saw was a policeman. I saw him come out of the house and he was headed in our direction. And this really worried me. I remember watching him walk over their lawn, 
crossed our double driveway, and then he selected the cement path that led to our front door. I went and turned on the porch light, I turned on the foyer light, and I opened the door, and there were two people standing there. Uh, it was him and a woman. Now, I assumed she was a plainclothes uh, policewoman because she wasn't in uniform, but nonetheless, she was with him. I told him my mom wasn't at home, you know, hoping that that'd make him go away. Uh, but he said no, he still wanted to come in, and I let him because he was holding a baby. He came into the foyer, and she followed him in, and then left us. And I had the notion she had just gone into our kitchen. But anyway, I didn't have too much time to process it because the policeman was trying to inform me what had occurred next door. Some people had been shot. One of them was this baby's mother. Uh, she was dead, and so was the baby's father. The kid was about three months old, and I could see blood on her pajamas. Uh, he said they were waiting for the relatives, to, some relatives to come and get her, but they were coming from a ways away. It would take them a while. Uh, they happened to be short on personnel. They needed everybody over at the ward's house. Uh, so they didn't really have anyone to watch the child. He said he'd seen the kitchen light on. He'd seen me standing in front of the kitchen sink, and he wondered if I would take her in. I don't even remember <laughs> saying yes before he ditched her with me and gave me her bottle, and I noticed it was only half full, and wondering what I was gonna do if they didn't get there in time. I was wondering if the kid came with diapers, I was thinking I might have to go swipe one off one of my old baby dolls. And that caused me to think about this woman that had gone into the kitchen. I, I had never seen her leave. When I walked into the kitchen, I did see her, but I could see through her. <laughs> and that's when, and that's when I understood uh, the woman wasn't with the cop. She was with the baby. She's very, very shook up. And she is standing in the corner. She was apologizing. That was the first thing. She was apologizing for being there. But she also told me that she was going to be there for a brief time. Uh, this was the baby's mother. My curiosity more or less kicks in at that point, And I don't really feel a sense of fear. So then I told her that I knew she was there and that it was okay. And after that, she seemed to relax a little bit. Uh, she relaxed, actually, a lot because it wasn't because I gave her permission to be there. It was because we could communicate. And that seemed to be of tremendous relief to her. So after establishing the identity, I got all practical. Um, I realized I wasn't going to be able to hold that baby all night that I was going to have to go make it a bed. She follows in, us into the living room, and she walked right across that living room to the opposite side and stood in front of those plate glass windows. And I remember looking out those windows and seeing those stars shining over those huge uh, rocky mountains, and she would stand there the rest of the night. She was focused on me and the baby, and there didn't seem like a lot of time to be fearful because um, I felt that she was there for a reason. 
I don't know, I think I com uh, she was communicating her thoughts uh, to me because I felt a lot of emotion and um, I felt her concern about what had just happened. And I knew she was troubled because she didn't know who I was or if she could trust me with her child. And I wanted to alleviate her concern, so I told her, hey, don't worry. I babysit all my nephews and nieces, and I've got 11 of them. And then I told her how sorry I was that she had just died. Uh, maybe it was my own fears that were feeding into things. I mean, I had just prayed off not becoming an orphan myself, and there I am holding one. Um, but I suddenly felt the pain of a mother and a child divided. I was um, sad. <laughs> I was very, very sad. Um, then I felt her disappointment. And then I felt her hope. She really hoped that her child would be able to hear the story and not let it ruin the rest of her life. Our relationship was um, quite practical, it seems. But most of the time, yeah, I held her really close um, next to my chest. I was quite protective of her. Just rocked her, uh, kept her safe. It was really important for me um, that she felt safe because she kind of wasn't. The baby was really quite a good baby. Um, I only remember her waking up once and crying, and then she slept the rest of the time. So, you know, I've often wondered if her mother's presence, if the, if the child felt her mother's presence. And I think that was the whole point of her being there. She was sticking around until she was sure that, that the baby was in the right hands. Well, I remember when mom got home and pulled into the driveway. I was at the, you know, I was at the door waiting to tell her what had happened. Um, and uh, it was probably about an hour or 45 minutes after she arrived home that they, the relatives came and picked her up. Um, they were very kind to me and, and, like I say, very appreciative. There wasn't a big transaction. We, we gave them the baby and it seemed like they were off. Um, as soon as the relatives had departed and the baby was, was gone, so was she. So I'm sure that she went with the child. And by then we had learned what had happened. Uh, this young woman had been having an affair with Donnie and uh, she had just asked her husband uh, for a divorce so that she and Donnie could carry, you know, for their, for their lives together. And uh, her husband was a Brigham City policeman. And after his shift, he had gotten drunk and then drove down to our little town to settle the score. He uh, shot Donnie, and then he shot uh, the mother. And she was holding the baby. Uh, they were standing in the kitchen, and she was holding the baby at the time, and the baby fell with her to the floor, which, of course, explained the blood on the pajamas. And then the shooter turned the gun on himself. So the thuds that echoed over our peaceful orchards had been bullets.
this sort of thing just didn't happen in our part of town. And it had given me some celebrity to have, have it happen right next door. So the next day when I returned to school, I was the center of attention because everybody wanted to hear this story. You know, it had made the uh, Box Elder Journal by then. So, And I told them about the policeman. I told them about the gunshots and the baby. But I left out the ghost. Why didn't you want to tell them? At 12, you crave ordinary. <laughs> I didn't want to be seen as unusual or different. And the other part of that is this was uh, a private a very powerful experience that I was hesitant to share. It was mine. Thank you to Janet Larkin for sharing your story at the Snap. Now, if you want to hear more of Janet's experiences, she's written them down in a book called Surrounded by Ghosts. Find out more at our website, Snap Judgment. Org. The original score was created by Renzo Gorio. The story was produced by Anna Sussman. In just a moment, what does the other side want? Find out. When Campfire Tales continues, stay tuned. Back to Snap Judgment, Campfire Tales. Now, anyone who watches movies knows that the dead only return if they have unfinished business. If you see someone, well, that's a bad sign, Jack. You're supposed to run away screaming. At least, that's what I would do. But fortunately, the folk in our next story, well, they're a better class of people. Snap Judgment. Mark Spencer, and I'm the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Arkansas in Monticello. When Mark and his wife Rebecca first moved to the small town of Monticello, they instantly fell in love. We saw a somewhat dilapidated but fascinating and beautiful old Victorian mansion with turrets and spires and a huge portico. There was almost a beautiful ruin. They knew they had to have that house. A month later, Mark finally got a call from the homeowner, who agreed to give them a tour of the inside. But the evening before, Mark and his wife decided to drive by the house. Their three kids were with them. We stopped in the street to sit and and, and gaze at it, as we often did. The older boy said, who's that lady in the window? And he pointed over to um, the second-story south turret window. I saw a lady sitting there in the window. It looked like she was sitting at maybe a small table or desk, reading a book or writing a letter. And my wife said, oh, that must be the owner. We drive away. The next evening, my wife and I go to the house, um, and we get to meet the owner. Uh, very, very charming older lady. 
And she showed us around the house. And then she took us upstairs to the second floor and she opened the door to the master bedroom. And the master bedroom was full of boxes and furniture and we couldn't even get into the room. And I realized that this was the room with the window in which we had seen the woman the night before. And I said to the owner, oh, but we, we saw you in the window last night. And she said, oh, no, as you can see, you can't even get to the window. And I haven't been in this room in months. Uh, and my wife even said something about, well, no, we all saw you. <laughs> and that's when the owner said, have people in town been telling you that the house is haunted? And I said, yeah, I've heard those stories, you know, and I, I'm not taken in by such silliness. And she says, well, it is. You know, so many people had told us so many stories about the ghost in the house. They said the house was haunted by a ghost named Liddell Allen, a woman who in real life killed herself in the master bedroom back in 1948. The big question, the mystery, was why did she do it? Nobody knew. At the time of her, her suicide, everybody was shocked and nobody understood it. It was a mystery from the start, and over the years, it remained a mystery. My wife and I just liked the house because it was unique and beautiful, and we thought it would be fantastic to fix it up and live there. And to Mark's surprise, the woman told them the house was theirs. She also said that she had this strange feeling that we were meant to have the house. The day that we moved into the house, uh, I was carrying boxes, and my little boy, who was five at the time, was standing there by the side staircase. And I remember being struck that he was standing very still, and he looked kind of pale, and I, and I thought that maybe he wasn't feeling well. And I say over my shoulder, well, how do you like your new house? And he doesn't answer me, and, and I say, well, well, do you? You like your new house? And he doesn't say anything. And then once I get the boxes situated, I, I turn, and he's not there. He was just gone. A little while later, I found him upstairs in his room watching a Star Wars movie. And I, and I said, well, why didn't he say anything earlier when I asked him how you like the house? And he said, what are you talking about, Dad? So I haven't been downstairs since we had lunch. That was like hours ago. Didn't give it a whole lot of thought. But then there were related incidents um, within the next couple of days. Like the time Jacob, the youngest boy, got mad at his older brother Joshua for coming into his room and whispering his name in his ear over and over again. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. When Mark confronted Joshua, he said, Dad, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, okay, what's going on? This is really weird. And I'm thinking, okay, well, we're exhausted from moving or something. But as Mark and his family settled in those first few weeks, the house's notorious reputation was impossible to ignore. We were bombarded with requests from paranormal investigators. And we said no. We said no, we don't want to get involved in that. So I'm, I'm not, you know, really taking any of this very seriously. However, one afternoon I was um, in the attic and I was actually hanging out the attic window painting. I was perched on the ledge outside the window, risking my life in the name of historical and architectural preservation. 
I finally got to the point where I felt like I had done enough for the for the day, and I pulled myself into the attic. And I turned, and I noticed that my shadow was cast all the way across the attic to the opposite corner. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I can see my my shadow all the way over there in the south turret room. I was in the north end of of the attic. It just seemed odd that my shadow would be cast in that manner. And then I moved, but my shadow didn't move. So when Mark got contacted again by a group of ghost hunters from Louisiana, he could no longer resist. And these ghost hunters seemed different. They seem like reasonable people. They, you know, they don't use psychics. They try to debunk things. They try to come up with explanations for what people interpret as paranormal activity. So the ghost hunters came. They set up recording equipment throughout the 6,500-square-foot house to see if they could capture any paranormal sounds. And after a long, uneventful night, they took off the following morning. They came back a few weeks later for their reveal. And the lead investigator sat with me and my wife at our dining room table, and he said, Mark, do you want to ask me the question that homeowners always want to ask? And I said, well, yeah, what, what is that? And he said, well, they always want to ask, is my house haunted? And I said, okay, is my house haunted? And he said, yes, definitely. The investigator said his team had gathered over 40 audio recordings of sounds that they identified as paranormal, what they call electronic voice phenomenon, or EVPs. Then the investigator proceeded to play them for Mark from his laptop. You hear, it's a woman's voice. And she says, I just lied. And, and then immediately after that, she says, It was justified. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is really creepy. Who are these, these voices? And the lead investigator said, well, that's not one of the investigators. Well, I had chills run down my spine. The investigators said that most of the recordings picked up the voice of a woman. Mark immediately thought of Liddell Allen, the woman who killed herself in the house all those years ago. And so, not long after that reveal session, I took a a $10 digital audio recorder, battery-operated, up to the attic one evening by myself. I decided I was going to have my own EVP session. And I'm sitting on an old couch up there, and I asked Liddell, why are you here? Probably not more than 10 minutes go by, and I'm already starting to get bored. And so I, I play back what I've recorded, and I hear my voice, of course. And then I hear very distinctly a woman's voice. And she says, I like it here. And the voice, it, it was like she was sitting next to me on that old couch. That was the evening when I realized for certain that we weren't alone because I knew I hadn't faked that EVP. I, I couldn't explain that. Okay, there's a ghost in my house, and she just talked to me. Saturday morning in August of 2009, I wake up, and 
I immediately felt a compulsion to go to the attic. It's like a voice in my head telling me to go to the attic, that if I did, I was going to, to find something. And I didn't really understand why I felt a compulsion. And we had been in the house for over two years, and I was pretty certain that I had found everything there was to find in the attic. But I found myself going up the attic stairs. I walked straight over to the edge of the south turret room, and I stood looking down at a small opening in the floor. It's a couple inches wide, two to three inches long. I just stood there looking down at it, and and. It, and it was like that voice in my head telling me again, um, look more closely. And so I got down on my knees and, and I peered into this opening in the floor. And then I got a glimpse of a brown piece of paper. And so I reached into the opening, got a couple of fingers on the edge of this brown piece of paper and pulled it out. To my surprise, it was an envelope. And I lifted up the flap and inside were smaller envelopes. They were white They're all postmarked 1948, and they were addressed to Liddell Allen Bonner. And I opened up um, the flap of one of the white envelopes and pulled out a, a letter, and the salutation was dearest, and it was signed love, and then under the word love was the initial P. And I realized that I had found a batch of love letters written to Liddell a couple of months before suicide. I jumped up and I ran downstairs and got a claw hammer, ran back upstairs and I pried up the, the floorboard. And underneath the floorboard were more letters. In total, about 80 letters. Most of them from a man named Prentice Hemingway Savage. Mark sat down on the attic floor and laid the letters out in chronological order. With the sun shining bright through the attic window, he began to read. Prentice, he was a wealthy, successful businessman. He writes in, in his letters how much he, he loves her petiteness and, and how he can't keep his hands off of her. And enough, nothing terribly explicit, but enough to make it clear that he's eager for the next meeting. Prentice writes, If you should show up around any part of the country north of the Mason and Dixon line, I'll find some reason to be there too. There was just that problem of him being married. But Prentice was successful in convincing Liddell that their corresponding was okay, that their meeting somewhere was, was okay. Although from what Mark could tell, Liddell knew better. She was pretty paranoid. Now, she kept all of his letters, obviously, and she kept the letters of her friends in whom she confided about the affair. In one letter, Prentice responds, What will I do with you if you don't quit worrying about your letters? So just dismiss that from your sweet little mind, my dear. But she made Prentice promise to destroy her letters to him. In fact, he had to tear them up, and then send the fragments back to her in his envelopes when he replied. And that's why in some of the envelopes, there are these scraps 
of letters stuck in the corners of the insides of the envelopes that are scraps of letters that Liddell wrote to him. Prentice and Liddell get deeper and deeper into this torrid love affair. They find a way to meet in Wisconsin and then Minnesota, where they spend two blissful weeks together. Prentice writes, These last five days will live in my memory always, as the happiest ones in my entire life. I love you. Don't ever forget I'm thinking of you always. And I'm there on my knees or on the attic floor holding this letter. You know, it's really hot and I'm sweating. <laughs> no, it, it seemed unreal. I'm immersed in the time of those individuals, March and April and May of 1948. And the letters are, are elaborate, they're vivid, they're full of expressions of, of affection and of growing affection. And it's not long before Prentice starts talking about leaving his wife. He writes, I know now more than ever that you and I should work out the details we talked over. I shall do my part soon. One of the things that they've been corresponding about for months is how he's going to be in Monticello for the holidays. By Christmas, everything's going to be settled. He and Liddell will spend Christmas together. But then there's a decidedly negative turn in early December. He writes her a letter and he complains about going to the dentist and, and he complains about being really busy. And then he says, I can't leave my wife after all. I just don't see it happening, at least not anytime soon. And he says in the letter he doesn't know when he'll be able to write her again. Prentice signs off. Take good care of yourself, dear. I'm thinking, oh, I knew how the story was going to end. Liddell would never receive another letter from Prentice. So it was December 25th evening. Liddell attended her, her mother's Christmas party. She mingled with the guest. I think she was holding out some hope that Prentice would show up on Christmas, that he would surprise her. And late in the evening, when he had not shown up, she prepared herself a plate of hors d'oeuvres and a glass of punch, and she went up to the master bedroom, which was her room. And she used the, the punch and the hors d'oeuvres to mask the taste of mercury cyanide tablets. I'd been in the attic for several hours at that point. I looked up at the rafters and, and said, I'm so sorry, Liddell. People often ask whether she's still there, and she is. One day, this was in April of 2014, I was um, walking into the master bedroom. I saw my wife on the other side of the room um, in front of one of the turret windows, and her back was to me. What struck me as odd was that she's looking out the window, but she didn't have the curtain pulled back. I'm about to ask her what she's doing, and I literally had my mouth open to speak to her when she vanished. She just completely disappeared right in front of my eyes. Big thanks 
to Mark Spencer for having the courage to dig up those letters. And we want to send our love and gratitude to Liddell for helping Mark find them. You can find out more information about Mark and Liddell's house on our website, snapjudgment.org. Leon Morimoto rocked that original score. It was produced by Nancy Lopez. Now we're out now, right now in dark closets, in hidden catacombs, getting ready for an all-new season of Spooked. 13 amazing episodes of Snap Judgment Presents Spooked. It drops this August. Be afraid. But Glenn and people ask me, how do I know if I'm being contacted from the other side? Well, I've got your answer in just a moment, Snappers. When Campfire Tales continues, stay tuned. From WNYC Studios and Snap Judgment's Underground Lair, you're listening to Campfire Tales. My name is Glenn Washington, and sometimes when you want to hear from a loved one on the other side, the signs can be confusing. How do you know if you're seeing what you think you're seeing? Well, Tim Snyder, he took things into his own hands. Snap Judgment. I was born in Scarborough, Maine. Specifically, I was born in the grandstand at Scarborough Downs as a racetrack. My dad was a, a jockey and my grandfather was a trainer. And so I started at the racetrack at a real early age. Horse has been my, my whole life. The racetrack's a pretty rough place. It's a hard life, you know? I broke my tailbone, I broke my neck. Actually, I'm crippled right now from horses. I love uh, horses. I like being outdoors. I don't believe I could work in a building. Like this building I'm in right now, I couldn't, I don't think, believe I could, uh, I could deal with it, being, being inside. I'm an outdoors person, always have been. Well, the first time I, I met Lisa was I ran over her, <laughs> believe it or not, with a horse. I was on a runaway horse. Well, the horse, he would break, he would break off with you and just take off at a dead run. And I hollered up ahead to Lisa, I didn't even know her name was Lisa at the time. She fell to the wall, her horse got loose, and my horse ran out of the barn up and across the street and then ran up into another barn. I went back across the street to make sure Lisa was all right because the horse did knock her down and uh, she was fine. I guess it was about a week after that, we were kind of like inseparable. It was pretty wild. We got married uh, a year later. We decided to get married. Lisa was uh, very attractive, very outgoing, do anything for anybody. She was just an unbelievable person. She was just, I could never, I never found a fault in her, you know? She was a great person. Uh, Lisa loved horses, would do anything. She could do anything. I, some of the worst horses I've had that were real rough houses, she just got along with them. They could, she could have a horse eating right out of her hand She'd, in a couple of days, you know? She could, uh, she could really change a horse. A lot of people always used to say, "What I don't know what they, she sees in you, Timmy. It was, it's hard to meet somebody like that, you know? Think the same, do the same, you know what I mean? Have the same ideas. Lisa and I were in, in business together with the race horses. Man and wife team. I hauled horses up throughout the country. She more or less did the training when I was out of town. Lisa wanted to keep every horse that I bought. 
You, you had to buy them, you had to sell them, you couldn't get attached to them. I've had probably four or five hundred horses been bought and sold. I used to have to take my horses to other farms and never let her see the ones that I would buy <laughs> because she wanted to keep them all. We were married about, yeah, we were married 10 years. We were in Columbus, Ohio at uh, Beulah Park Racetrack and uh, she got a real bad pain in her back. She had uh, expressions on her face that I've never seen before and I knew it was serious. And I just told her, look, Lisa, we're going home tonight. She had cancer. It's a miserable disease, I'll tell you. Late stages of when she was sick, uh, towards the end, she used to always comfort her mother and me that she would, don't worry, that, that she, was gonna, she was gonna be back. <laughs> and she was coming back as a horse. It's kind of crazy how all this happened, but she said, I'm gonna be back. I'm coming back as a horse. I'll be back. After, after my wife passed away, I sold all my horses. I traveled the whole country. I was kind of like, uh, kind of lost, you know? I don't know if I was running from it or whatever. And then uh, I eventually went back to Finger Lakes. I had it in the back of my mind to buy a horse and get back into training again. I got a, a phone call from a guy that I hadn't talked to in four years. <laughs> he said, geez, I think I got a horse here you might be interested in. I had a couple thousand dollars in my boot and off I went in my station wagon and, and, and uh, I went to see the horse. I was like, oh, wow. She had a problem with her foot and she had one eye. Uh, she wasn't named. She never beat a horse in her life. Never had finished a, a workout in front of one or galloped in front of one. That's why they sold her. And then she had the one eye and then she had the club foot and uh, she had a lot of faults against her and they totally, totally gave up on her. And, and I told him, I said, look, I got 2,000 in my boot. I'll give you 2,000 now and 2,500 when she wins. If she wins, you get paid. If she don't, she don't. Actually, how Lisa got her name, or Lisa's booby trap got her name. I was in a, my boss, the guy I was working for, John said, he said, let's go to the booby trap. I said, all right, what is it? He said, oh, it's a, a gentleman's club. You get a nice big sandwich, you get a lunch, and uh, you throw the girls a few bucks, and that's how she got her name. I named it after Lisa, and I named it after the bar, <laughs> Lisa's Booby Trap. She went right in training. I had to do some, make some changes with her. Her feet were need some corrective shoeing. I, uh, I I trained her every day, exercised her every day. I galloped her myself. It took some, it took some time for her to develop into what she turned out to be. Different things struck me. Uh, about her, you know, the look she would give me, and uh, it, it sounds kind. Of, you know, everybody says about reincarnation and all that. It's it's kind of crazy, but, but this horse would actually. I could think something, and she would do it. it. It's that's kind of the relationship we had, you know. And then Lisa, my wife, was the same way. You know, I could be thinking something, and she knew what I was thinking. It was really, really crazy. But a lot of people picked up on it. I mean, she's like a, she's like being Lisa. You want to know the truth? It's like being Lisa's still here, actually. The Lisa never let nothing ever get her down. My wife, and uh, Lisa, the horse over overcome. She had one eye, and she was handicapped, couldn't see, but it didn't bother her. 
she would set pain aside to do her job, you know, and, and it takes quite a horse to do that. The first time I ever raced her, I drove by the cemetery on the way in and, and I stopped and seen Lisa and I told Lisa, I said, we're going to win one today. This horse was just like out of her, out of her mind, feeling good, you know what I mean? And there they go. They said go, and she went right to the front. Out for the lead race is Lisa's booby trap from the outside. Every stride was she opened up. Lisa's booby trap getting away. Sandy She's a racehorse. No doubt about it. And Lisa's booby trap has a big lead. She's all alone. Sandy Castle's in the second. Check out this debuter. Lisa's booby trap. Very impressive in her first look. She is an authoritative winner. She went by 17 lengths. Almost an eighth of a mile. There wasn't a horse in the picture. It was amazing. It was a, a real rush and a real thrill, you know. The purse was uh, probably about 20000 She won her first three races at Finger Lakes. It's called Finger Lakes Racetrack. And then Saratoga opened up, and uh, the, the purses at, at Saratoga are $100,000, and at Finger Lakes, they're $20,000. That's the difference. I was looking at a Saratoga book one day, and I said to myself, I said, well... I think she's earned her, earned her way to go to Saratoga. I think the odds uh, started out at 10 to 1 at Saratoga. The four horses that was in the race with me, they spent a million dollars on. I spent 4500 The horses have reached the starting gate. They're off. Zermatt, Stroman, and She was uh, last from the, from the start, from the beginning. booby trap is the last of five. It was a real, very fast race, a lot of speed. Here's Lisa's booby trap, who's on the march. Fourth on the far outside, and funny feeling is fifth. And she just kind of circled around him, and he hit her two or three times, and she just took off and ran right on by him like they were tied to the fence. Lisa's booby trap has made a run from last onto the lead. And no they were all out. They ran hard all the way. Here's Lisa's booby trap under the wire by a half a dozen lengths. I had to fight my way through the crowd to get to the winner circle. I'll tell you, I could go to the donut shop without you know, have a cup of coffee. They'd say, hey, that's uh, the trainer in Lisa's booby trap, <laughs> you know? Every lady that named Lisa or every lady that had cancer or anybody that had one eye, they were at my barn to meet Lisa's booby trap. I've had people in my, I had to have a guard to guard my horse. <laughs> the horse was just fantastic with the camera. She loved people, she nuzzled up to people. She didn't bite or nothing. She'd love you up. When I got to uh, to Finger Lakes, the first guy came up to me, offered me sixty thousand. Then I had another guy offer me quarter million dollars in cash. Then I had a guy come from uh, was from Kentucky that he offered me uh, a half a million dollars for the horse. Broke as I was, I could I probably could have used a half a million dollars. Money is uh, dirty as far as I'm concerned. I didn't want to sell the horse, period. I don't think I'd sleep right at night if I sold her, you know? She was the star of Saratoga that year, and I, I mean, she didn't win a million dollar race or nothing, but she was uh, horse of the year. She was uh, three-year-old filly of the year. She was best allowance horse, male and female of the year at Finger Lakes. I was working her. Just one day, I just got a, a, just a feeling that uh, it's not the right thing to do. I backed up and uh, 
I took her home. I took her home and uh, retired her. I didn't want her to be crippled. See, a lot of horses can break down. People get greedy, and they want more, you know what I mean? And they'll, they push them right to the end. I've done it with a lot of horses, push them, you know, right, right on through. But uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't want to do that with her. And this is the only horse in my whole career that I haven't sold. Everybody said, well, what the hell, you, why would you not want to run her? And I said, well, what if she broke her leg? It was a tough call. There was plenty of races for her. I could have run her numbers of the year. I quit while I was ahead, and she was ahead of the game, you know? She's out in my barn. I see her every day. I, I brush her every day. I pick her feet every day. I feed her every day. I get a, an inkling or, a, or, a, or a, a, a something in my stomach tells me go to the barn. I go to the barn. I sleep a lot better at night. She's the biggest thing in my life right now. I don't know if that sounds a little strange, but it's, a, it's about the, the biggest thing in my life. I love her to death. Yep, I certainly do. I get two leases, you know. And you want to know the best part? Lisa's booby trap was being bred for the Kentucky Derby winner, Big Brown. So stay tuned to hear about Lisa's little booby trap coming into the world. Big thanks for sharing your story, Tim Snyder. Find out more in Tim's book, The Ghost Horse, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The sound design by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Anna Sussman. If you want to go for a trip, Snap Judgment Presents Spook drops this August 13 episodes of our journey through the dark side. Real people, real stories, be afraid. Snap Judgment was produced by the team that always wanders off the path. Don't look him in the eye. The Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Pat Masidi Miller remembers. Anna Sussman forgets. Renzo Gorio treads lightly. Nancy Lopez carries a big stick. The Seer, Eliza Smith, Adiza, Third Eye Egan, Liz Mack is marked. Tailed Cot is not marked. Leon, Dark Crystal, Morimoto, and Jasmine Aguilera. She knows things. And you may have guessed. You may have guessed that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you go on about your daily business just like you always do, only to realize that no one spoke a word to you today. Actually, come to think about it, no one has spoken a word to you for the past 80 years. And you are still not as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. Oh,